Hello, my dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of Big Fan of the Human Race podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is a world-renowned expert in income inequality and global inequality, Branko Milanovic. Currently, Branko Milanovic is a visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center at City University of New York, and he's also senior scholar at Luxembourg Income Study. Before coming to the Graduate Center, he was lead economist in the World Bank's research department. Uh, he is also known to kind of wider audience and certainly to me as the author of a book called The Haves and Have Nots uh, and a book called Global Inequality, a new approach for the age of globalization that came out in 2016. And uh, that book really changed the thinking um, of academics and policymakers uh, about income inequality and wealth inequality. So Branko Milanovic was one of the first scholars to kind of effectively approach and analyze income inequality from a global perspective. And the book, of course, was recognized as one of the best books on inequality ever. And uh, I have a few copies myself and sometimes give it out as a present to someone who's interested in the subject. In the podcast, we, of course, talk about global inequality. We talk about the rise of socialism in the US and the rise of populism. We talk about political polarization. Uh, we discuss Uber IPO, climate change, Extinction Rebellion protests and many other super interesting subjects, as well as in the end, Branko gives some advice to young professionals on uh, how to choose the career of their dreams that uh, Branko certainly has. Just for future reference, a new book is coming out uh, that is written by Branko and it's called Capitalism Alone. And it's coming out in August 2019, but it is open for pre-order now. So if you are interested, please go to the description to the show. Uh, and pre-order a copy for yourself. Now, I don't want to take any more of your time and ramble about how great Branko is. Um, how about you tune into the episode and relax for the next 45-50 minutes or so. You might want to grab a notepad because it's going to get quite intense. That's a disclaimer, official disclaimer from me. All right, guys, enjoy. Thank you very much. Hi, Branko. Hi, Max. It is really a pleasure to actually meet you. We know each other from Twitter and uh, yeah. from the Internet, but it's very nice to see you in live. We um, just for the listeners, we've had some some logistical hurdles uh, getting this set up. So we are very happy that we're finally um, rolling here. So first question, um, I'd like to start off with uh, your visit to LSE yesterday, just because this is the university I go to now and I feel very strongly about its kind of coolness. Uh, and you on Twitter, you said that LSE is always special. So I was just wondering, um, what did you mean by that? And yeah, I actually, I think for me, maybe for many other people, LSE is very special because it has, of course, it has a great location, which is London. Then secondly, it's very multinational. As you know, better than I, it has really students from all over the world. And it has professors also from all over the world. And then it is also has a certain history, which is kind of a... Uh, left-wing, uh, somewhat radical, but uh, sort of freewheeling history mm -hmm. that, for example, other universities, which are also very famous and actually even obviously much older, uh, like in England, like places like Oxford or Cambridge or, for example, mm -hmm. in the U.S., Harvard and others, don't have. So they, they are more, it seems to me, they are much more... Um, in some sense, they may not be really conservative, but they just look like that, whereas LSE has this kind of uh, freedom, you know, at least that's my impression of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So just to kind of backtrack and to put 
uh, it in context for the listeners, how did your interest in inequalities um, arise in the first place and how did it kind of progress throughout the years as you know it has become a prominent topic in the past decade or so and uh, it wasn't really a major deal for let's say the economists back in the day so just wondering how did that progression feel for you as an expert in the field no this is actually a great question because of course i, I guess you would like me to say how did i get interested in uh, inequality yeah, to before, start with before before it became, before it became yeah, fashionable yeah. Uh, i i was interested because i now when i think of this you know i sort of realized that there are two uh, types of interest that i had and we are really talking now for a very long time ago, because it was really in the mid-70s when I started studying economics in Yugoslavia, and it was actually in Belgrade, now Serbia. And I had an interest in social issues, and I was actually quite influenced by Marx and by Marx's writings. And on the other hand, I studied statistics, so I really studied numbers, and I always liked numbers. And even nowadays, for example, when I travel, uh, one of the things that I always do when I travel is is, uh, I cannot really write very much when I travel, but actually I work with numbers. I reorganize numbers, so I like numbers. And then uh, the first time I still remember that when I saw, we didn't study income inequality in class, but I saw in some newspapers like the distribution of incomes. And I remember it was actually the French distribution of incomes. And then I just became extremely interested in that. And that was, of course, the time much before the internet or anything. But then I looked. Uh, at some literature, I don't remember anymore what it was, but mm-hmm. you know, I found out about the Gini coefficient, the Lorentz curve, and all of that. And that was a, a kind of, a, for me, almost a love on the, on the first sight. I remember having a friend in a class, statistics class, who started calling me Gini because of the Gini coefficient. <laughs> Uh, so that was the beginning, and then I did, in, uh, much later, actually 10 years later, I did my dissertation on income inequality in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. So that was the, uh, maybe actually the first time that was uh, the microdata were used, mm-hmm. you know, because there was not much written about, uh, we can talk about it later, why in, you know, socialist countries income inequality was kind of discouraged, you know, yeah. to study it much. And then in the World Bank, so to end the story, in the World Bank, uh, when I got to the research department, I was one of the very few people from Eastern Europe who had previously worked on the issue. Really, in those days, they were more interested in poverty than inequality, but one of the few people who worked with microdata. So then I continued doing that. And since I was in a unit which had access to household surveys from all around the world, then that's where I had in the mid-90s this idea of really putting the global income distribution. Mm -hmm. And uh, my paper, it was I think 98 or 99, was the first such paper that you had really the data from all around the world. So that was the progression, you know, basically from one country to a region to the world. Uh, you mentioned that you kind of combined your interest in, in, in Marxist, let's say, economics and statistics, and that kind of fueled your interest for inequality. Just wondering, was there any other option in, in former Yugoslavia apart from being interested in, in, in Marxism and kind of being a supporter? Oh, no, there was. Actually, I was rather unusual in that. You know, uh, the way that economics was studied was actually interesting. In many respects, it was, I think, quite good. Uh, because in the beginning, you studied, basically, you studied Marx. Even you had to read, although nobody read it, but parts of the, you know, Das Kapital. However, there were actually very good summaries, you know, which are like a textbook summaries of mm-hmm. the main points. 
But then uh, from year, from the th uh, second or third year, you basically studied, that was really the textbook, was Samuelson economics in mm -hmm. a simplified way, because Yugoslavia was a market economy. So whatever, when you talk about like uh, uh, managing aggregate demand, uh, mm -hmm. uh, money supply, the role of money supply, fiscal policy, it was very Keynesian. Yes, mm -hmm. so we actually studied, you know, and it's not such as people think, it's not such a huge break because actually what Marx did, and I think it was not a bad idea, what Marx did was actually this uh, grand movements of socioeconomic formations. What basically Keynesian economics does is really uh, essentially economic policy under the conditions of uncertainty, under the conditions of market economy. So mm -hmm. the two are not, in my opinion, kind of uh, so far apart as many people mm -hmm. think. So anyway, so I was going to say that actually uh, not many people were interested really in Marxist economics because it was really more, if you had more social and this larger interest that you were interested in that, but otherwise than that. However, I have to mention one thing that actually people <coughs> didn't pay much attention to that. There was, of course, the contradiction was in the following, that uh, Marx, as you know, obviously, has labor theory value. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved as, to study actually marginalist economics, there was this really little bit of a difficulty there because suddenly the factors of production are paid, you know, according to marginal mm -hmm. productivity. And in Marx, it does, of course, appear because uh, in the theory of the rent is basically based on marginal productivity. It was taken from Ricardo. Mm -hmm. So there was some overlap, but there was also some, uh, I would say, some problem there as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, students, I don't think that we noticed these problems in those days. Got it. As you, and then, you know, moving on from Keynesian economics, as you saw neoliberalism becoming, you know, kind of alone in the sense of uh, being a globe, global, globally dominating regime, did you have an intuition that, well, maybe this is not so good for income distribution? You know, I had an, an intuition. Uh, of course, when we studied, it was much before neoliberalism. So that was, uh, you know, neoliberalism basically was in the uh, late uh, 80s, actually. I think the definition was 1982. Uh, in any case, uh, I had uh, beginnings of doubts on that because, uh, as I mentioned before, when I was in the World Bank Research Department, we also, you know, traveled, most, actually mostly traveled to Poland and worked on, actually on Poland quite a lot. I spent lots of time in Poland and then on uh, Russia. Mm -hmm. And then what actually what I found striking is the period, uh, I think, like 1990 to 94, in Russia, which was really a disaster in all respects. Yeah. And then the contrast between what people were saying is happening there, which was purely, of course, neoliberal policies, and what really you could see on the ground was so enormous that you actually sort of started wondering, like, like how can it be, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, now, I do have to say that, you know, it is, one has to be more careful maybe on that because I do believe that uh, when, uh, I just want to say about Russia, just to be very more precise, I do believe that actually in 1992 when Gaidar, I think it was January 1992, when Gaidar did his macro reforms, you had no other choice because the country was on the, as, as you know, was actually at, at the point of kind of uh, breaking up. I mean, not only I mean, break, falling apart, you know, there yeah. was like uh, issues of famine, of uh, epidemics and so on. 
Uh, however, what I think was obviously wrong was the very much period from 1988 to, to 1992 and then the privatizations after that and all of that. So I just wanted to, to point out that many people, uh, I think, unjustifiably uh, attack Gaidar, but I, I think at that point Gaidar really had no choice but to do what he did. Mm-hmm. Just you mentioned Poland and just quickly and also shout out to all the Eastern European listeners and I'm sure you appreciate the attention given to the region uh, so far. I, I remember when I was young, growing up in Ukraine, it was maybe early 2000s, Poland was casted as like a nightmare place to go to, you know, and I remember my grandma used to actually cross the border and sell plugs and adapters and all kinds of little things because their their market was just in need of goods. Do you consider Poland, and recently World Bank reclassified Poland into a high-income country, and, you know, it seems to start to dictate some rules to, you know, the established economies of of the West, maybe together with Hungary and so on. Do you consider Poland a a success story, Um, also perhaps of the policies of the World Bank and so on? And what are the special bits of that story? No, I definitely consider, I think, Poland a success because it's very difficult not to consider Poland as a, as a, a success. Actually, as you said, actually, it was reclassified as a high-income country. And secondly, that's, I think, the only country in Europe that in the last 25 or maybe 30 years did not have, uh, probably since 1991 or two, didn't have a recession, actually. Mm-hmm. So it had positive growth for uh, 30 years. Uh, so it was. it is a definite success. It's actually, I would say, most successful economy of all the transition economies. I would I would mm-hmm. say that as number one. Um, but I, I, you mentioned that because uh, that uh, shortage, for example, in 1980s, and uh, uh, that was true. Actually, I, I worked on and actually spent quite a lot of time in Poland before the change of regime in. Uh, uh, 1989 and of course the situation was very difficult because uh, uh, that was the case martial law was was no longer in effect mm-hmm. but uh, Poland uh, was a little bit in the same situation that Iran and Venezuela are today in other words Poland had m- accumulated massive debts uh, under the previous regime Gerek regime mm-hmm. which they couldn't repay so they were strictly speaking in default to the foreign creditors, but because they had a regime that the U.S. was against, then they had no access to any lending. So, in other words, Poland really had this massive issue, to some extent unsolvable issue, unless you have a political change, and as mm-hmm. you know, then eventually got uh, uh, write-off of the, I, mean, I think, two-thirds of the debt, and then the things improved. But it was in a, in a position very similar to the position of Venezuela and, uh, and Iran today. Mm-hmm. In this context, you wrote uh, on your blog post, and I think you write it in Global Inequality too, that inequality can be good and bad, which is something that is perhaps at odds with uh, some perhaps other academics. Like, let's say, if we think about the spirit level, there seems to be a suggestion that there is many problems in the society and they're positively correlated with high inequality. The lower the inequality, the less is the problem. But you seem to be of an opinion that there is an optimal level. Uh, Undoubtedly, the question is, where is that? And also, in context of uh, Ukraine, recently became the most equal country in the world in many reports, overtaking Sweden, and yeah. our government was parading it as a as a success. Um, so, just wondering if you could elaborate on good and bad side of inequality. And yes, I, it's a it's a good question. I think actually, uh, first, uh, many people think when we speak, speak of equality, inequality and equality, almost they treat them uh, uh, as a binary category. So when I say sometimes we should reduce inequality, people who are in uh, 
favor of inequality, let's mm -hmm. say, they say immediately, ah, but you want everybody to have same income. And of course, I tell them, you know, it is not a binary category. If I say that it's today too hot because we have like 35 degrees Celsius, I don't mean that actually I really would like to live in Siberia, you know. Yeah. I would like to have maybe 25 degrees, not 35. Yeah. Um, but I think also when you ask the question, actually, that uh, I believe that there are some uh, levels of inequality uh, which are too low, I do believe that maybe because I also am influenced by socialist experience because I think we had um, in, under socialism uh, very low levels of inequality mm -hmm. and uh, uh, these low levels of inequality meant essentially no no returns, for example, to education, insufficient pay for people who were spent more years working, uh, I mean studying and then working, and consequently really lack of incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, capital was mostly, you know, public or state-owned, so mm -hmm. there was not even a question about investors because they, they didn't exist, actually. But even for when you take labor, the wage distribution in socialist economies, and we know that empirically from the 1960s, was actually much more egalitarian than, the, than in market economies, and I think it was not good. So mm -hmm. I think it was a suboptimal level of inequality because it really destroyed incentives. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I believe that there is, I cannot tell you what is the optimal level of inequality, but I believe that actually you can push inequality way down. Uh, China did the same thing, for example, in the Cultural Revolution and, and afterwards. And I just remember now, there was a good friend of mine, there was a, a, a Czech sociologist, Jerzy Wechernik, who did <coughs> a, following, excuse me, a following study. He actually uh, said, okay, I can actually predict the income of a household simply based on demographic characteristics, uh, gender, um, a uh, number of years, I mean uh, age, a uh, number of children. So nothing about education, skills, uh, labor, nothing. And actually, he got pretty good results. So in other words, if you see that, then you realize, well, there is no really returns and there is no incentive to schooling, to working harder, to actually trying to do certain things, to invent something. And I think that was not good. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, to what you were saying about, you know, coming from, uh, you know, in the past, a socialist country. There is an, uh, there was an article on The Economist and actually was on the cover, The Age of Millennial Socialism. Mm -hmm. And there are striking levels of support for a socialistic or quasi-socialistic regime among the youth in the United States, which is supposed to be you right, know, the most yeah. capitalist economy in the world, I guess, you know, the land of opportunity. Uh, just wondering if you are seeing any dynamic with people that are far away from socialism or haven't really experienced that seem to be more drawn to it than people that have experienced socialism. Yeah, well, you know, it is true, actually, that the, I think among the young people, among, among millennials, uh, what is called in the U.S. socialism is very popular. And actually, I'm very much in favor of that because I think that the U.S. was in many respects like a mirror image of the Soviet Union. So in other words, the brainwashing uh, on a purely terminological level was mm -hmm. so strong mm -hmm. that essentially, if you said in the past, I am socialist, they would actually almost treat you like I'm, you're saying I'm a Nazi. You know, it was so, so bad. Uh, and I'm actually very happy that the young generation has actually seen through it and actually saying I'm socialist and it's considered normal. Mm -hmm. And uh, why I consider that good is because uh, uh, what they call socialism is really not 
what we just called like uh, five minutes ago, yeah. because that was communist with a single party regime, with no private property uh, over capital, with compressed wages, with, you know, somewhat either authoritarian or totalitarian government. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously none of these uh, aspects are something that young people support and they should not support them because they were bad. Yeah. But what I actually like uh, is their ability to, uh, to be in favor of uh, socialized medicine, uh, public education, uh, greater taxation of the rich people, limits on top incomes, inheritance tax. And I think it is only people who are very extreme right who try to reuse that label which was in the past so negative in the United yeah. States and call yeah. them socialists. And actually I like very much that they've been able to withstand that pressure and to actually very clearly call themselves socialists, which basically means in the European terminology, social democrats. Uh -huh. You know, and I think it is actually good development. What I want to know is your opinion on the role of narratives versus reality. Because okay. it seems that, you know, this idea that, you know, hammer and sickle is bad, socialism is bad as a word. And then, you know, if you think about Bernie Sanders, like yeah. all those labels are so prominent. Do you think that we are paying a lot of attention to labels, it seems, without getting into the details of what the policy is? And is that yeah. manufactured or is it just the way humans kind of digest stories? Well, I think that's the way the humans digest stories because we need to have labels for different uh, sets of opinions, you know. We cannot just uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, break up like one opinion in all small pieces because there will be just simply too many, uh, vari you know, variables then, you know. Mm -hmm. you, you, you cannot just, uh, uh, you have to have a, some kind of a, a summarizing title. Uh, what I actually uh, liked about the fact that actually what is called socialism in the US now is really social democracy in, in uh, West European or European context. I, uh, I like the fact that that word has been recaptured mm -hmm. and it is, has been uh, clearly separated from the war, another term which could be communism or something else, which is different. Mm -hmm. uh, because even if you go back to the origin of the, you know, socialist movement, it was always a socialist movement and it was then, you know, after the, uh, the Russian Revolution in 1921 and so on, th that's where actually communist movement started. Uh, if you go back, you know, the Second International and even the Russian Party was called Social Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, then it became a Bolshevik Party and communism. So I think it's very good that we are recapturing uh, uh, the word which actually it has to deal with democratic socialism. Got it. And so in that sense, I, and, and in that sense, I'm also, I'm not in favor of uh, like banning uh, symbols like hammer and sickle. They are not very, they would not be very popular today either because you know, the, the social structure of society is different now. Mm -hmm. You know, hammer and sickle made lots of sense when you had maybe two thirds of a population or maybe more who were peasants and workers. Nowadays, it's very different. You know, you have farmers who are maybe in developed countries, one or two percent, so that's the sickle, yeah. right? And then you have hammer, which basically in developed country, again, you know, people who are working in the manufacturing sector, maybe eight percent. So, you know, uh, I mean, technically speaking, I don't think this is the, 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 the symbol that actually has potency that it had uh, before. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that actually, you know, it can, I don't think it can be compared to like uh, things like swastika and, and other things which are really clearly uh, extremely, how should I say, you know, insulting and uh, sort of almost genocidal, if you will. Yeah. 
Um, a question on um, kind of wool-faced capitalism, what they call it. Um, Uber has recently filed for an IPO and there was a bunch of protests um, in London uh, suggesting that it is undercutting a lot of the good-paying jobs and making it kind of a race to the bottom, uh, you know, among the, you know, let's say workers. So to me, it seems that there is a, I mean, obviously, you know, that's a, it's widely discussed that there is a trade-off between kind of efficiency and fairness. And if we think about companies um, such as Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, uh, well, Amazon is actually a prime example in this sense. They are so kind of ruthless in their markets, yet they do make things faster and easier. So that's, that's undeniably the case. But it seems to be that there are obvious losers um, once these companies gain scale. So in this kind of respect, how, how would you reconcile these interests for kind of global efficiency, let's say, and those groups that are just un- undercut in quite a bad way? Yeah, that's of course is a question which is obviously much broader than what is my sort of area, which is obviously inequality. But it does have relationship to inequality. Um, I mean, as you said, actually in, in many respects these companies have improved efficiency in the sense that, for example, for consumers, it's a great advantage actually to have Uber. It's mm-hmm. also a great advantage to, um, to have Amazon, which actually can deliver anything anywhere at, at, uh, at low prices. But it is also true that they have, particularly the Amazon, they have actually taken over large segment of the market. So it looks a little bit like 1920s when you had large trusts mm-hmm. and uh, 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 lack of competition and monopolistic power and then regulation came in. So I would, you know, this is obviously, as I said, not my area, but I think actually that regulation on some of these, uh, uh, on, on some of these, you know, behemoth, huge mm-hmm. companies mm-hmm. is is necessary. Um, but I see this also as a feature of capitalism that is, um, how should I say, that is inbuilt in, in capitalism in the sense that, you know, going back again 100 years ago, writings about monopolization of, you know, of capitalism, and that made mm-hmm. sense is that essentially, in this case, you really have large economies of scale that actually enable you, that's very clear with, with uh, you know, companies like Amazon, that enable you to uh, 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 gain that position and to retain that position. Yeah. And uh, uh, then uh, that's, the, that's where the uh, sort of a, a conflict or the role of the state versus this huge company becomes really relevant. But I'm not saying that I'm, uh, as I said, I think it is a little bit uh, regressive trying to be against Uber simply because Uber is taking jobs from taxi drivers. Actually, I do prefer taxis. Actually, New York mm-hmm. always take taxis. But I'm just saying that there is a certain logic to it because people who work who work on uh, with Uber, they actually willingly use their free time to do that. Um, the issue, of course, is whether they should be treated as workers and or, or mm-hmm. contractors, as you know. So the Uber obviously has great advantage of treating them as contractors because then they don't have to pay any of the social things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, of course, the, 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 the problem with, with the uh, uh, business model that, uh, f- that they have. It's a problem for the society, not for them, because mm-hmm. they are actually benefiting. But I'm not taking a very negative view towards that. So mm-hmm. that's what I want to make uh, clear. Got it. Um, just something I'd like to dig in, and I understand this is kind of digressing in a way from your area of expertise, but th- what you said about the, the the willingness part of it, like the freedom of um, 
participation in this economy or a freedom of uh, signing up to terms and conditions and then perhaps being exposed to some kind of a exploitation, what some might call. Um, there is a lot of literature now, a lot of arguments to that. That freedom isn't really real in the sense of, you know, if you think about Facebook and then if you think about Amazon and Uber, yes. you know, it, it's coming to that extent that you would be disadvantaging yourself if you don't opt in um, in some sense. And that is also similar to kind of the, the, the Marxist point of view of that of the inevitable exploitation and that the, the choice isn't really yeah, yours yeah. because you kind of have to do it. Do you see that? Is that the case to the extent that Marx was kind of des describing it, if we think about all those companies that make our life so much better? Well, yes, there is some case of, you know, uh, it's, it's a difficult question. I think that uh, obviously your decision to, for example, join the company or join Facebook or, you know, work as a driver for Uber is a free decision. But of course, the, the, the basis on which the decision is made, the relative position that you have, the power relationship that you have to accept, is not free. Mm -hmm. I mean, or it's actually uh, a relationship between the two sides with very unequal power. Um, and I think it is in that region, it is there, that the role of government, the state, should become important. In other words, mm -hmm. what the role of the government and state should be is to some extent to uh, equalize that unequal relationship which sometimes exists between the companies and you yourself. That were particularly with you look, when you look at the, uh, what is called precariat nowadays. It's actually people who cannot get better jobs who get all these small bits of jobs, and obviously they are in a very unequal position towards these companies. Either you know, as you have like uh, as you know, uh, zero-hour works mm -hmm. and all that. So you're basically going back to the 18th-century capitalism that you have to show up every day, and then you never know whether you would have yeah. a job or not. And I think it is where actually the state. It has to have a role, and that's actually beginning. I hope to have the, to have a role is to equalize the the relative power between labor and capital. Mm -hmm. But uh, just the last point on that, I think actually this uh, the 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 uh, what we are witnessing in the world in the last maybe twenty well thirty years or so is really this very uh, uh, increasing. Uh, difference in power between capital and labor. And I think it's partly because we have had a huge uh, inflow in a, on a capitalist market. We have had, and that's actually why capitalism is the only mode of production now, we have had a huge out inflow of labor from the former Soviet Union, from China, and India as well. Mm -hmm. uh, people who were working under sort of non-capitalistic types of yeah. production. And then you had, in some sense, about like f more than 50% increase in in wage labor or people who are working within the capitalist system. Yeah. And you didn't have similar increase in, in capital. So it seems to me that there was really the, the unbalance between power of capital and labor today is the result of a very huge inflow of labor which makes me more optimistic for the future because I just want to finish with that. If in the future, 50 years or so, we have an accumulation of capital, which we do actually with growth, and at the same time we reach a peak of uh, labor or uh, population in the world, we might have actually more equal uh, playing field between capital and labor.
Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I'm quite an, quite an economist. I believe that actually this unevenness in power between capital and labor is because of different regulations, which actually the state was much more in favor of capital, but it was also because of the underlying change in the quantities between the two factors of production. Okay. So just on that kind of the long-term vision that you just mentioned, Branko, you um, in also one of the blog posts, you're talking about the impact of migration uh, being amplified by you, you called it quasi-automatic inequality. And then you said that when you put the two together, and especially we can see that in Europe, the political environment becomes poisonous. So to me, to what you said just now, it seems that even though there is potential for it to work out in the long term, it seems that the political landscape can get so toxic that we will actually not get there because it is just too polarized in that sense. What are, how, how does that toxicity manifest itself and how to cap the downside of this transition. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a very good point because, of course, uh, when I spoke about this long-term transition, as you said, actually, if we get the, the short-term problem to be so big yeah. that actually it changes the political um, uh, sort of uh, landscape, uh, we may never get to the long term because actually there could be political movements that actually prevent us from getting to the long term. And in, in that context, uh, that's why actually I uh, came up with this um, uh, story of circular migration and proposal of circular migration of people who would have to go to the countries. I mean, they would um, have to immigrate, they could immigrate to the countries they want to immigrate to only if there is jobs there. And uh, the reason is not because I really find that proposal uh, phenomenal and that I would like to be actually part of that because it really is discriminatory towards immigrants. But the reason why I put it on the table was because I believe that if we do not accept some of the complaints or unhappiness of the native populations, then we would actually end up with a situation where there will be a backlash which would put us in a much worse position where either we have really very toxic governments or we have zero migration or we have like we have in the, in the UK now really Brexit, greater uh, controls, border controls, pressure to actually make what they call it hostile environment for the migrants and so on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm, this proposal is essentially an attempt to avoid that worse outcome. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, many people don't agree. They say actually that that proposal does have discriminatory elements, which it does because it somehow uh, uh, allows you to come to the country where, for example, to the UK, it would allow you to come only if you had a job and then it would allow you to come only for a limited period of time and so on. Uh, so it has many features that are actually from the point of view of, you know, some kind of human rights that are not, um, uh, you know, desirable. And then if you think about it within Europe, that would also be illegal, right? Because it would be against the non-discrimination. Oh, no, within Europe, within European Union, yes, it would be illegal. So I'm not, you know, okay. I'm, I'm treating the European Union in that sense as one country. So, uh, you know, okay. the, the movement yeah. would, be, would remain the same. Yeah. Okay, talking about one country, um, have you seen the World Upside Down installation at LSE? Ah, yes, I have seen it. Yes, it's actually, I, I must say, it, I know it's controversial, and that's uh -huh. what you want to ask me, but uh, I, I think it's very beautiful, actually. Uh -huh. It's very beautifully done. Okay, okay. Uh, you mentioned that in regards to migration and that inequality in that article, you talked about the fact that um, kind of world without borders, let's say, is politically um, impossible as of now. And uh, also you said that a, kind of a nation state that is uh, completely independent uh, from the 
global economy is economically impossible, so in the current kind of um, landscape. Which one of these is, uh, is the unlikeliest? Uh, the, of course, the current world, you know, we cannot have one world because uh, we still have, you know, nation state that is really dominant player. And it doesn't seem that the nation state is going away at all. Uh, obviously, we don't know what will happen in many years, in many centuries, but currently that's how, how it seems. Uh, on the other hand, we don't have a system, and it's actually good that we don't have a system that we had maybe 50 years ago when we had essentially more autarkic uh, countries. Not to, I don't mean here again, you know, communism regimes or China or India and so on, but even Western countries actually had, of course, limits and had uh, exchange controls. Many countries had no, not convertible currencies. People don't even remember that, but, you know, many countries had, you know, uh, um, uh, parallel exchange rates and so on. So yeah. that was certainly not a system that is, um, uh, I think, desirable. And what we have now is definitely better. But we are in between now. And what was also interesting is that there are some issues, including global inequality or climate change and uh, maybe a few others, that in essence are global in, in nature. Mm -hmm. And when I say global inequality is global in nature, it's, it's essentially because of migration. Mm -hmm. And they, they are global in, in, in their fundamental sense, but we don't have any uh, uh, institutional framework where we can actually if not solve, but at least discuss these issues other than nation state. Mm -hmm. And I think that's somewhat of a problem, actually, maybe you meant, I mean, had in mind also a blog that I wrote about the, the climate change, because climate change is discussed, I think it's actually the best example, is discussed at the level of nation states, you know, China, US, uh, you know, Brazil and so forth. But uh, the issue is uh, uh, emissions which are of, uh, from individual people, which means, generally speaking, rich people. And the effects are very often, uh, or will be very uh, sort of worse, on individual countries that actually have very little power in that discussion. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, Africa. Yeah. So we clearly have a situation where the, the, uh, the framework of nation state is, um, suboptimal in yeah. the sense that actually this is not where the issues are so it's not really what i want to say is that not the issue that china is now overtaking the us as the largest emitter the issue is where the people they could be norway us sweden you know israel italy where the people who are actually producing that, which means where the rich people whose consumption pattern with meat, for example, with, uh, you know, air travel and others is the most significant. So is there a way that we can tax those people? And there yeah. is no way that we can do that. You know, yeah. we could actually ideally would like to actually impose, let's suppose, heavy taxation on goods that are contributing the most to carbon emission, but we don't have a, a tool to do that because we don't have an international agency that could impose taxation, for example, on UK citizens. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying is that actually we are in a, a very um, peculiar position that we do have now global issues, but we don't have an institutional framework to deal with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that manifests. I read an article about uh, the number of scientists and lawyers that different countries bring to the climate change conferences that is supposed to be in, you know, you can bring as many as you want and you can have as much negotiators, as many negotiators as you want, but surely, um, you know, Maldives don't have 
as many lawyers and scientists that are ready to take on the U.S. kind of lobbyists. Um, just one thing on climate, something that I, there are two things that I kind of struggle to understand. One is, and that's the first question, which is, let's say if we take Russia, mm-hmm. right? There is an argument to be put forward that for Russia, warming is a good thing. Because they have a strong resource base, right. they have uh, uninhabitable areas of Siberia that can right. benefit agriculturally from the global warming. Which is, then the first question I'd like you to kind of elaborate on is, is that trade-off between the um, interests of a state, and obviously a state is a sovereign, and people elect the government to kind of further their needs as, as a ruler, ruling party of the nation-state, and the kind of that international problem. So how, how, how could possibly... A, a nation state in its current form reconcile reconcile the two no i i think actually i answered that in the in the previous question that you asked me but concretely on russia and russia and, and canada are likely to be the really very significant uh, uh, winners or actually beneficiaries from the climate change because of the reasons that you just mentioned actually it would be and we already see you know changes of that you see like in England uh, now you can grow wine you can actually things that you mm. couldn't do in the past um, and of course uh, uh, lots of territory which is in the far north in Russia which nowadays really other than for uh, exploitation of uh, diff- or, of gas or oil or nickel or whatever mm-hmm. is really not very useful will become actually quite useful so there will be um, uh, Russia is going to win but what I want to say is that uh, you know the the uh, the structure what I was saying before the the if we really take a global perspective uh, clearly the climate change is uh, bad news and it's particularly bad news because the negative effects on the poor parts of the world mm-hmm. which really means Africa essentially but also parts of Asia and what, whoever is actually around the equator would be very significant so people who actually are losers have no ways of protecting themselves or getting compensation from the winners mm-hmm. um, and I think this is, is really, it is a, 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 an issue and even our, <coughs> and I'm actually not an alarmist with, when it comes to, to climate change. I actually have, I'm somewhat of a techno-optimist. I believe that we will be able to solve that with correct incentives. So what I was saying before, if you were to actually change relative prices of these goods that are actually contributing the most, I, that's what I, you know, I think that we, that's what the world, we, mm-hmm. I mean, if I can use we, uh, should do. But uh, so I'm not an alarmist who believes that actually we are going to, you know, have, uh, you know, the end of civilization because of that. However, it's not uh, alarmist to believe that the extreme events, for example, huge floods or tsunami or things like that can actually happen. And then in that case, as you know, actually, I'm kind of I also like very much Nassim Taleb's work. And I think it's relevant there as well, because if you have these extreme events and you have more and more of them and this is, they, they are by, by the very definition as, as Taleb writes they are unpredictable because they're really at the at the end right tail and mm-hmm. then you might have like for example a tsunami which might kill like thousands of people and this is really the cost of climate change mm-hmm. that is so I'd, I'd like to finish off on climate change with also mentioning the extinction rebellion that's happened in the UK and uh, uh, you know Greta who is a girl that is kind of the face of the climate yes, change um, movement, she suggested that the UK is actually the country that is most at fault 
out of all of them, out of all of the countries for for the global warming because of the industrialization and because of the past of colonization and so on and so forth. Just to me, it seems that it's if you frame it in this way, it's so difficult to go back in history and retrospectively yes. blame which country caused yes. what, because obviously with colonialism, you know, you can go back to yes. all kinds, you can go back to Roman times yes. and then try to make links. Do you think that there is a case for kind of drawing the line and saying, okay, things were how they were, we are here now, let's just figure it out without going back centuries and yeah. saying well actually you did that so you're probably the most at fault. No I totally agree with that actually you know I didn't know that she said that the UK was the most at fault I think it's really I honestly believe that it makes no sense you know because uh, is the world better off with the industrial revolution or without I don't think there is any doubt that we are better off with industrial revolution should mm -hmm. we not be now sitting here in a hotel having espresso and talking with uh, you know all these you know microphones and so on or should we be like uh, in in a forest so I don't think there is a different there is like doubt so we are definitely better off uh, if there are, and there were actually negative effects of the industrial revolution as you know there were enclosures people who lost uh, their livelihood many people actually died you can actually say the industrial revolution in uh, other countries like uh, uh, Russia or China or even Bengal famine may be related to that but you know we have to draw the line I mean this is good to have exploration for historical reasons like what who were the losers slavery for example uh, but to actually bring that into the current political debate and to I, I'm actually also against uh, this whole thing about compensation and all that I don't think it makes sense we have really to draw the line and to actually uh, work from this point onward not bring back things from like you know two or three hundred years ago because as you said there is no end to that you can actually go then to the Roman times you know and mm -hmm. then say that the Romans were actually guilty or you can actually start with Spain and the conquest of the new world mm -hmm. and all that so it is all legitimate topic for historical discussion but I don't think it should be brought brought in into today's uh, um, actual decisions about climate change or inequality or anything else. Branko this is a question from uh, my course mate Vera and she is asking mm -hmm. about the potential of political hijacking of the data visualization and uh, when she kind of asked me that question, mm -hmm. I thought about Simon Kuznets and Simon Kuznets was educated in Ukraine and there was a Kharkiv School of Economics named after him. And uh, reading his work, it seems that the, you know, the fact that inequality is an inverted uh, U-curve or bell curve really wasn't what he was saying. He was saying that much of it is speculation. We don't have enough data to suggest that. But it was taken as granted and then yes. perhaps politicized to push some of the neoliberal agenda. So obviously your elephant graph has caused um, a lot of the uh, praise and a lot of kind of conversations around right, it. Right. So just her question is really about, do you consider, you know, when you visualize data in certain uh -huh, form, uh -huh. do you consider the potential impact it's going to have on political narratives and whether it can be misused and how nuanced you want to be? Yeah, I, I, to be quite honest, I don't consider it actually. Uh, yeah, uh, and I'm not sure really that even Kuznets did. Of course, it was a, as he said, 95% speculation, 5% data. Yeah. Uh, because really what he had then, and I think that it was the first article, the first uh, mention of that was, I think, 1955. Then he continued working in the 1960. Um, uh, there was still very little. It was much later, actually. The irony of the Kuznets curve was that actually the data that really 
sort of tested the Kuznets curve became available like long after the Kuznets curve was uh, was uh, first uh, kind of imagined and sort of uh, drawn. Um, but when it comes, to, for example, to answer the second part of the question, which was about the elephant graph, uh, when when I did that, and when you do that, you really are driven by essentially what the data are telling you. So it mm -hmm. is basically purely empirical. Now, the advantage, I mean, the great uh, part of the, I mean, what the great appeal of that was, it was very clear to me even very first time when I saw it, the, because I remember that it was the summer of uh, 2012, when I first saw the, the elephant chart, what became the elephant chart, uh, it was very clear to me that this is something empirically, uh, showing empirically something that we already knew, which meant really the lower parts of the income distribution of the rich countries have not done very well, China has done very well, and the global uh, top 1% has done very well. But I was not driven by uh, what would be the interpretation of that and how people would judge this or whatever. I, I found that it has really huge political appeal from the very beginning, but really what was there was really the numbers and the data. And then, obviously, it became politicized, clearly, and then you go into more, how should I say, sophisticated versions. As you know, for example, at least two better versions of that exist. One is that you keep the deciles of the countries, which create the, the elephant chart, you keep them in their position in the 1988. And this is something that in the paper with Christoph Lackner we called uh, a quasi non-anonymous because it is not totally non-anonymous because you, if, you, if, you, if it was uh, totally non-anonymous meant it would mean that you follow individuals over time. But obviously we cannot follow individuals. But what we can follow, we can follow country deciles. So we can follow the third decile of China. We can follow the fourth decile of the United States. So that's why we call it non-anonymous, mm -hmm. quasi-non-anonymous. And then you can draw another elephant curve, which looks more or less the same as the original one, but it's a little bit slightly different. For example, the top is not as uh, uh, high as it is in the common you know, uh, elephant uh, chart. And the third uh, version is in absolute terms. Then obviously the gains yeah. are then telling you a very different story. In absolute, uh, uh, if you have the absolute version of the elephant chart, then of course almost 50% of the gains are going to the top 5% because their original income was so much higher than the income of the people in the middle that even if they have a small increase in uh, in uh, uh, percentage terms, mm -hmm. that increase in absolute terms is very large. So that was, uh, then you become kind of more aware of that and do it in a sort of more sophisticated way that um, should not be sort of hijacked, as, as your colleagues say, you know, politically. Mm -hmm. But I think the original one, at least for me and I believe for many people, is really uh, data-driven. And I think it's actually good because we should not be uh, uh, driven essentially by what we want to show. We obviously have a hypothesis, but we really have to be driven, I think, by the data. Okay, got it. That actually reminds me of a chapter in Skin in the Game by, uh, by Taleb when he talks about inequality in a kind of a, you know, slightly skeptical way, right, saying yeah. that because you can't follow the individuals, yeah, some of the data is, is uh, well, not optimal or imperfect. But um, last question, Branko. Uh, this podcast, I mean, most of the listeners are students and young professionals, and uh, 
you know, there seems to be many things you can do with your life and, you know, you can either go study or go work or something else, volunteer, travel, etc. Uh, you know, just listen to how, you know, you fell in love with the subject of inequality and then, you know, became uh, one of the top people to ever talk about it, um, it seems. How, how would a young person go about thinking what to do with their lives? Because that seems to be yeah. a present question, including for me right now. Uh, you know, of, of course, the, the answer is basically, to some extent, trivial, because you can say, and I really believe that, that people should really follow their own interests. Because if you follow your own interest, you would at least be happy with what you are doing and what you are working. So at least one issue in your life is really work happiness will be solved. Now, the issue there becomes, if you do what you really like, but it has no reward. In other words, for example, nobody is interested in what you're doing. You're not, you don't have a job and you have to survive. So you have to do something else mm -hmm. which you don't like. And I think it's really lots of human unhappiness comes from that uh, part, at least in the work life, is that actually many people have interest for thing A, but that, that thing really is not very lucrative, does not attract an attention, and then they have to do something B. And then there is kind of this kind of dissonance between really what you like and what uh, you have to do on a daily job. Um, and th this, I think, is a problem. Nevertheless, I believe that one should really try to follow the thing A, what he or she likes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, essentially, I think you just have to to hope that you're lucky because in my case it was a pure luck that actually for me it was luck uh, for many other people it was not it was luck that uh, the topic became very big mm -hmm. you know until 10 years ago the topic or maybe i don't know 12 or whatever the topic was a total sleeper nobody paid any attention to this you yeah. know and it could have stayed like this until you know another event maybe in you know who knows in 2025 you know uh -huh. uh, so um, it's really uh, uh, luck, and, and uh, uh, I think it was actually, it was, um, um, I think, was it Voltaire who said, I'm not sure, that uh, it was, uh, anyway, uh, that uh, 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 in French, le hasard, le hasard uh, uh, profite les esprits préparés. The, the accident uh, is helpful for those who are prepared, who are ready. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you are ready to do something, then uh, if the accident happens, which means positive accident mm -hmm. happens, that actually something that you are working on becomes popular or important, that actually is going to, to help you. It's, it's a little bit like when you know um, uh, like know something about like a soccer team or somebody, and you, your attention is drawn to that when you see it in the newspapers or when you see it on the internet, you would actually relate what you already know to what you have seen. But if you have zero knowledge, then of course you cannot relate anything that you are reading to the pr previous knowledge. So it's actually everything is blank. Got it. You know, it's like many times when people say, okay, well, you know, if you have, didn't know the term or something new that you learn, you're very often surprised that the next day you see that. And yeah. the reason why you see it is because you never, you were never prepared to, it never really, that yeah. particular term yeah. never really made it to you because you had no relationship to that. So it's a little bit what I meant, like when I said, uh, do something that you like, and then if you're prepared, if there is some 
favorable set of circumstances actually that can, mm -hmm. that can work out. Uh, that's a very long answer, but basically I think essentially people should try to do as much as possible what they really like and um, uh, make some compromises because obviously you have to make some compromises at some point, but without losing that essential um, idea. Uh, final point, I have to say that, for example, for people like myself, and I think many people who actually like it to work on what they like, mm -hmm. uh, work is really not a disutility. Actually, work is, uh, is utility. You know, I, I cannot say that actually I have this utility from work. Yeah. You know, so, so I think that's a great advantage. Brilliant, brilliant. For the listeners that want to find out more about you and about your work, where is the best place um, to do that? And what's the best book to buy? Oh, well, you know, to find out more, is, I think the best, best way is to go to my blog, which is not a very sophisticated blog, unfortunately, uh, because I didn't know how to set it better. But maybe I'll, I'll do it because it's a very simple blog. But anyway, they can just write my name, Blanco Milanovic blog, and you will find me easily. Uh, for the books... Uh, I would say if you really start in this area and you're interested in inequality, I think the haves and the have-nots is a great start mm -hmm. because it is introduction to inequality, uh, three types of inequality, first within nation states, the second between, and the third of a global, and uh, uh, it has uh, each set of inequality issues has an essay which explains what it is but then really illustrates some really kind of I think cool examples for example you would find out you know you know how rich was Eli I mean how rich was Elizabeth Bennett and you know difference between Elizabeth Bennett and Anna Karenina mm -hmm. you will also find out like Champions League how actually it is becoming more une unequal because the same teams basically win yeah. although this year is a little bit different with Tottenham is yeah. very different yeah uh, uh, you will find out find like for example how you know how much money you need to have to be in top one percent mm -hmm. so they're very I think there are quite a few interesting stories that you can find there and you can read them really at random you don't need to follow you know uh, the book to, to just you can read story one and story five afterwards mm -hmm. all right awesome Branko thank you very much for your time it was a pleasure thanks a lot All right. Hello again. So this is it. I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. I had tremendous pleasure recording this episode with Branko and he's extremely approachable in person and uh, obviously remarkably intelligent. Just a few quick bits of housekeeping for Branko's Twitter. Uh, his handle is Branko Milan. So it's at uh, B-R-A-N-K-O-M-I-L-A-N. In order to purchase a copy of Capitalism Alone, uh, please find the link in the description. And of course, as always, if you're interested to see what I'm up to, it's maxklimenko.com, uh, Max O. Klimenko on Instagram and Twitter. And what else? Do I have anything else? Oh, of course, of course, Max Klimenko on YouTube. Thank you very much for listening. As always, thank you so much for tuning uh, in and listening to another episode of the podcast. The next one is coming out in the beginning of June. So I hope you're excited for the next episode as well as for summer that is around the corner. All right. Good luck to everyone and bye-bye.